Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through bandcamp.com. Catalyst with a K, and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. In January 2020, Antisense Pioneer and Ionis Pharmaceuticals founder Stanley Crook launched a nonprofit to design and deliver custom RNA targeted therapies free of charge for individual patients with ultra rare diseases. The organization, and Lorem Foundation, leverages Ionis's technology platform to speed the discovery and development of custom Antisense oligonucleotides. More than a year later, the work of the foundation is well underway with a number of therapies in development to treat individual patients. We spoke to Crook, CEO of the Enlorem Foundation, about the need the foundation is addressing, why antisense oligonucleotides are well-suited to the task, and what challenges it faces in scaling the operation to address the needs of a greater number of patients. Stan, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Enlarm Foundation, antisense oligonucleotides, and your efforts to develop customized treatments for patients with ultra-rare conditions. It's now been a little more than a year since Enlarm launched. For listeners not familiar with the foundation, perhaps you can begin with explaining its mission. Uh, the mission of Enlarm is to take advantage of the efficiency and versatility and consistency of performance of uh, antisense drugs, ASOs, we'll call them ASOs, uh, to bring experimental ASO treatments to patients with uh, N of one mutations. And, uh, and to do that for life, for free. And I always feel like I should repeat that because uh, even to me, having been in this business all since we a lifetime, I still find it unbelievable that there's a technology that could support doing that for free, for life. Uh, and, um, and, and so that, that is our, 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 our mission. Uh, and I think we're well along the way toward, toward, meeting, uh, toward meeting that goal. Why is an organization like and Lorem needed. What what gap is it filling? Well, uh, I spent uh, it's now uh, about four years since it first um, dawned on me that the technology in principle was capable of of doing this. 
and of course, if the efficiency of the technology was no surprise to me. That's why I founded uh, IONIS and why I um, persisted in developing the technology for more than three decades. But you need more than efficiency uh, to actually do this. Um, and and, and in, in aggregate, the items that you need are housed in only one place in the world, and that's IONIS, and that's the company I created. And in addition to efficiency, uh, you need a technology that's versatile, and people who aren't familiar with the technology, because it's hard to keep up with all the progress, uh, often don't understand that we now have uh, uh, multiple designs that we can use to do a wide range of different things, including increase, actually increase the translation of specific proteins. Um, and that we have validated that we can administer these agents through all routes of administration. And that's critical uh, because we're possible when, when you're treating a single patient uh, or even up to 30, and we define in of one patients as patients who have mutations that are unique to them or have been identified in at most uh, up to 30 people worldwide. And that number is important. I'll come back and tell you why. Then, so you, you need uh, multiple routes of administration, multiple mechanisms of action. Um, and then you need, uh, uh, above all, um, a, uh, a, a consistency of performance. And at IONIS, um, and, then, and therefore at, XC, at, at NLARM, uh, we have access to four major chemical classes that we use. And we know those chemical classes extremely well. Uh, we've studied them in thousands and thousands and thousands of patients now. And, uh, um, and so we know exactly how they behave. And in the major organs to which they distribute, and they distribute very broadly, we actually can tell you how many molecules of ASO per cell we need to actually produce pharmacology. And, and, and all that's published. In addition, uh, we know their side effects and the side effects are consistent because all these uh, medicines are basically the same except for the genetic zip code that we use to direct them to whatever target RNA we like. And, and, and so um, knowing what potential side effects to look for is critical. And all of that information is published and available to regulatory agencies and has been for some while. And that's unique to IONIS. Um, and so we have an enormous database to work from that provides information about what dose to use, how frequently we should dose, what route would be the best route, what mechanism we should use, and what's to watch for, if should there be a potential side effect. All of that contributes then to our ability to do this and to do it for free. The second uh, item that you need um, is very high potency. And uh, we are focused at Enlorum on five organs and only five organs. And these five organs are the organs that we understand extremely well. And, and the basis for, for picking these five organs is that these patients uh, are typically desperately ill. They have typically spent years trying to obtain a diagnosis. Just what's wrong with me? 
is, is a challenge that most of these patients never ever get answered, if you can imagine that. And then if they're lucky enough to get to a tertiary care center that can answer the question for them and tell them what the ge genetic mutation is, the next thing they hear is there's no treatment and there probably never will be because there is no economic model that would justify making a, going through the development of a drug for one to two or 10 people in the world. And you couldn't do it anyway because these people are spread around the world. So it's a, a, a set of behaviors and characteristics that are a product of 30 years of, of advancing the technology, a desperate and growing need. These are desperate patients. They're not just patients, they're families. And while each mutation may be unique, the number of these patients that we're discovering is staggering. It's millions. And one of the saddest um, um, things that you see is that many of the patients we're dealing with have a known disease. Um, we, we have a patient, a really sad patient um, with cocaine syndrome. <laughs> now, cocaine syndrome doesn't mean anything to anybody mostly in the world. It didn't mean anything to me until I met this patient. And, you know, that was a syndrome that was defined in 1936. This poor family had a baby that was born and spent three years trying to find out what was wrong with it because it was failing to thrive. It was having all kinds of troubles. She, not yet, she. And uh, ultimately she had two cardiac arrests at three years old. A three-year-old baby with two cardiac arrests finally was referred to a tertiary care center that Knew, knew what was wrong with the patient immediately, genetically sequenced the patient. And Concane syndrome is one of these uh, progeria-like syndromes where the patient rapidly ages. This baby um, has a face that's, well, let's just say it's sad. And uh, um, so, you know, we're treating that patient. So you see all of these patients and there are millions of them. So, um, I knew I could do it. I knew that I was unique in, in a situation which I could do it and do it well. And uh, I thought very carefully about whether a commercial or a, a charitable model would work, would be best. There's so much to commend a commercial model because we know how to do it. We've been doing it for 120 years. But if you think through it, even for a second, you realize it, it would be insane. Um, first of all, how would you do a clinical trial that would be sufficient to meet the requirements of approval? Um, if you have, let's, let's say you have 30 patients and they may be spread in 30 countries and they will be of different ages and they will have different degrees of advancement in disease. So it's just inconceivable as a person who's done clinical trials now for almost five decades, I can say, <laughs> I can't imagine a way to do it. But even if you could, to make economic sense of it, you'd have to charge these patients millions and millions of dollars a year. I think that's wrong. I think it's just wrong. I don't think uh, patients or parents should have to be on the internet raising money to get their loved ones cared for. And I also think it would be terrible for the industry. On the converse, 
having the opportunity to do this and help these patients and do it for free, I think shows the true heart of our industry. Uh, and so it, 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 it becomes very obvious. Then the third thing you need is access to the patients, but you, you, it's not just patients. You need access to all the genetics. These people have to be have full genome sequencing, almost always. You have to have access to a very specialized investigator who understands the disease, understands, you know, this is a geneticist um, and a team. These patients cannot be taken care of by a single person that cannot, they're too sick. Um, and, and an institution that is prepared to take care of these patients long-term. Because if, if we're lucky and the ASOs work, we've learned from Spinraza and other ASOs that we've developed for babies, that if we get to them early enough, we maybe can produce babies that result in babies that live a normal, healthy life. So you need an institution that's ready to take on that responsibility. And then finally, I spent 2019 just um, trying to make sure that the regulatory environment would be supportive. And I was very pleased that the FDA was um, keenly interested in finding a solution for these patients. And uh, they're still working on definitive guidance. But in the meantime, we had the opportunity to work with the, the various uh, divisions of the agency to, in a variety of ways. And, and I came to the conclusion that no matter what the guidance came out to be, um, there would be there would be sufficient opportunity for us to do our work and do it properly. And then I want to focus especially on the final point, and I and I can't emphasize this enough. So I'm going to say this twice, and everyone just has to bear with me because you need to hear this. And and that is that this has to be done by professionals. So we've instituted uh, uh, systems that assure that the decision-making is thoughtful. No single person makes a decision whether to treat or not treat one of these patients. In fact, we have a committee we put together called the Access to Treatment Committee. It's made up of a broad swath of all the um, uh, expertise we need, antecedents, clinical trials, clinical care, genetics, uh, pediatrics, adult, because we have a lot of adult patients. And since we're focused on the liver and kidney with subcutaneous administration, the lung through aerosol, the eye through direct injection in the eye, and we've done that now for many years, and, uh, um, and, and the central nervous system intrathecally, which we've done for not many years, we have experts in neurology, ophthalmology, pulmonology, nephrology, uh, and, and hepatology and inborn errors of metabolism. So before a patient is ever even considered as a possible option to treat, there is a group of people who are responsible for making these very difficult risk benefit decisions. Ultimately, I make the final decision. Uh, then, then you need a quality ASO. Now at Ionis, we have developed systems that are so efficient and they really don't exist anywhere else. Uh, you know, of, of 
you tell me you would like to screen 100,000 sites in a particular RNA to find the best place for an, for an ASO to work, and you'd like maybe to look at different four or five different mechanisms, I can uh, ask the team to do that, and that, that's a few plates we add to the robot, uh, complicated algorithms that we use that have evolved over 30 years, and in a week or so, I have them. And, and then we can do all the other work that's necessary to pick the very, very best one. You must have the best ASO that you can get. And then you need a quality development. And then finally, you need to be sure you learn as much as possible from each patient. These patients are precious. We can learn from them and we owe them uh, the, the commitment to learn from them. So when we agree to treat a patient, we meet with the primary investigator and the patient sometimes and or parent and determine what the primary treatment goal is. It has to be something meaningful to the patient that we believe we might be able to fix. Then the secondary treatment goals, we define what we're going to measure uh, as the endpoints. And then we initiate, because it takes about a year between decision to treat and to have an ASO ready to treat. In that year, the patient and the pa and, or parent and the physician agree to thoroughly, thoroughly document that one year natural history. So that even though there's a single patient in the world that we're treating, we will be able to know whether we're doing that patient some good. Now, some patients are tragically very simple, um, you know, because they're so desperately ill, uh, survival is the primary endpoint. Do they live another month or three months or six months? But other patients are vastly more complex. They have seizure disorders, they have movement disorders, they have um, uh, um, developmental delays, because almost all these things at some point will cause developmental delays because you need you know, all of your body working when you're a, a child to develop. And so uh, the other reason I did it was to assure that it be done with quality. And finally, I did it because I didn't want some misguided venture capitalists out trying to found companies that would make money out of these poor families. And so mostly it's to help. I'm uh, 99% to help, but there's a 2% or 1% there that's trying to avoid what I think could be inevitable if somebody competent doesn't do this. So that's a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to take so much airtime, but um, all these things are important for your listeners to understand. You do not want to trust yourself or your child to an amateur. Well, for a listeners, ASO technology is a complicated business. It's not a set of tools that you can just go get. For listeners not familiar with antisensolaganucleotides or ASOs, what exactly are they and, and how do they work? So ASOs are what we do with antisense technology, and this is why it's so efficient, is we take the genetic information directly and we convert it to a small piece of genetic information, typically 16 to 20 nucleotides. I'm sure your listeners know that that DNA and RNA are made up of nucleotides, and that and that's just a little three-letter alphabet. 
four letter alphabet, but three letters, you know, define an amino acid. And we chemically modify it and it has to be extensively chemically modified in order to make it a good, a good medicine. And we design it depending on what we want to have happen after it binds to the target RNA. And so um, in an RNA, uh, RNAs are many, many thousands of nucleotides, thousands. And so and where do you bind? What, what do you want to have happen after? And, and, and all RNAs are structured, highly structured, and they're also bound to all kinds of proteins and so on. So it is um, a non-trivial process. It, were it trivial, we could have called success 30 years ago. Uh, it took 25 years to get to the place where we can announce that we can do this. And it took 25 years for a reason. It's hard. What makes ASOs particularly attractive for treating ultra-rare genetic diseases? Well, they're efficient. They're very specific. Uh, we can design ASOs that are even designed to work with one allele, not the other. You know, you have two alleles, uh, uh, two, two separate uh, genes. And sometimes, very often actually, one allele is bad and one allele is good. There is no technology other than ASO technology that can do that. Uh, and we understand their behavior entirely. And so if you think about a small molecule, there's an old adage in small molecule drug discoveries called change the methyl, change the drug. And it's an old adage that's true because it is true. If, I, if you took aspirin and changed one methyl, you'd have a drug that you would not know have any idea what it would do. So in contrast here, if we make minor changes, we know what to expect. So um, we have consistent behavior. We have very big, high potency. We can deliver by all routes of administration. We can design the specific reagent that the patient needs. We can even design an agent that can selectively alter one but not the other of the genes that could be causing the problem. Uh, so it's, it's all those things that make it possible. And I do not mean to just say that we are unlimited. We certainly are not. If the patient has a complete loss of gene, a null mutation, we can't replace a gene. Um, so that, that would need gene therapy. Uh, and there are organs that we're choosing not to work in, not because we don't know that ASOs work there, but they require higher doses, like skeletal muscle. We don't, we don't treat patients with skeletal muscle disease with our drugs because we think the doses are too high, uh, given the limited amount of information we would have for any individual patient. At Ionis, we're, we're working on that, but we're not ready yet to do that in, in N of one patients. So, so we have some limits, and that's one of the reasons why I've been uh, uh, trying to develop a network of, uh, of other participants who may have other technologies or other approaches that, that, that they can join us. I believe that the solution here has to be the creation of a network of all of the stakeholders and, 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 a, and a cooperative interaction between the FDA and LORM. Uh, and many other institutions. For example, uh, 
uh, the major cost today for in lower ASOs is toxicology, animal toxicology. Every single one of the uh, organizations that we use um, to do toxicologic studies uh, is doing them for essentially cost. Uh, and that includes Charles River Labs, it includes Covance and an organization called KIT, which is in Korea. Um, and now our manufacturers um, are beginning to also um, donate time and and money and uh, and and lower cost to help us uh, lower the costs even more. Just the work I've done this year, I've been able to cut costs per patient by 30, 40 percent. And you know, every <laughs> every every dollar I save is a dollar I can use for the next patient. So. It is, in Lorem, it's not trying to go this alone. And Lorem is trying to blaze a ground, create a network of, of, of stakeholders who are con committed to these patients and invites uh, anyone who wants to join us who can help, whether they bring a technology or whether they bring knowledge or whether they bring money uh, to join us and, 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 and make this even more possible. We... Uh, you know, and my my biggest fear is that someday I'll have to tell a patient no because they don't have the money to treat them. I expected, and I'm always most optimistic around Ionis and Enlorm, maybe four applications in our first year because of COVID and brand new and everything. We actually had 54 uh, and, you know, that's growing significantly. We're moving to treating to treat about 20 of those patients now. So uh, it, it, the demand is high. We're also uh, not attempting to provide help in Europe or Asia yet because I want to make sure that we work, that this is all working and we have guidance from the FDA that then we can use to uh, transport to other, uh, other, other, other jurisdictions. Nor have we actually raised money from um, outside sources. Once again, because I wanted to make sure and loan would work before I took money from other people. There have been lots of people who learned about it who did donate, but it was entirely passive. They, uh, they, they simply wonderfully donated uh, because they realized what we're doing is important. We're, we're just now, <laughs> this is sort of backwards, but we're just now getting our, uh, our materials ready um, to, to try to go out and start raising money formally. Oh, what's the process NLORM goes through to identify a patient with which it'll work? Well, it's more or less what I've described. The, um, the, the patient, parent, and or patient or parent and investigator physician it has to be a true tertiary care investigative physician complete an application. It takes all of that because the application is just highly extensive. Uh, we need to know a lot about the genetics. We need to know what organs are involved. We need to know just a lot. Uh, and I thought, frankly, the, the, um, the um, application would be daunting. And that would be another reason we wouldn't get many applications that has proven not to be true. 
uh, once the application is, is received, it's blinded, so we're HIPAA compliant. Uh, then the CSO, C, I, I can't keep straight, CTO or CTSO of uh, in Lorem, who is also the CSO or CTO of Ionis and who is a former student of mine that has worked with me to help me build Ionis for these 30 plus years. And I uh, have a look at it, we triage it. If it doesn't look like it's one that a, a patient we can treat, we present a summary to the access to treatment committee. If it is a patient we, can, we think we can treat, we present a much more detailed summary, typically with the investigative physician invited so that we, we really get to know what's going on with that patient. Uh, after a thorough discussion there, the um, um, patient, if, if, if it's still a go, is then referred to the executive committee, which is basically me because all the other members are on the ATTC. We finalize the decision and then we uh, work with our partners at, in Lorem, or, in, or I mean at Ionis. Ionis is, of course, our first and by far the most important collaboration, um, by far the most important collaboration. Um, and then, um, and then we, we do the necessary work to get it ready, to prove mechanism, to make sure that it's um, as safe as we can make it. And, and it's very minimal. It's not like a normal development package. We typically screen in vitro, uh, often using patient cells, patient-derived cells. Then we do a single species toxicology study. And assuming all is a go there, then we work with the investigator of a file, what's called an IND. This is the document that's necessary to file to get approval from the FDA to treat the patient. In the meantime, we will be gathering the natural history of the patient. And then every year we publish an annual uh, paper. Uh, we'll, we'll publish an annual report, but what really matters is a scientific publication where we will get into very significant detail about how each and every ASO performed and what our overall performance was so that the world can see it and evaluate whether what we're, what we're doing is, is making a difference or not. You talked about the fact that the families never pay for, for any of this. Is there any expectation that there will be an opportunity sometime down the road to get payers to embrace this approach? Uh, for us, it doesn't make any difference. We're giving the drug away. So I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. But I think it would really help. And, and we will work with the consortium of, of um, institutions if insurers recognize the needs of these patients and, um, and uh, is, are supportive of their care. Now, these, the cost of care of these patients is already borne by the health care system. And typically, when you have a new medicine that makes things better, you reduce costs. You don't increase them. Contrary to popular belief, you, you decrease costs tremendously. Uh, even if the, the disease is rapidly fatal, such as SMA was, and because the, the care during the, during the pre-fatal phase and then the end-of-life care is so, so expensive. More importantly, 
you create the opportunity for these people to have a productive life and a family to have a child or to have an adult uh, that, 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 that they can enjoy. So I certainly hope that insurers embrace this notion, but um, it, it's, it's, it's for the, um, it's for the it's investigators and the institutions and the patients primarily if, if you're giving your drug away, who cares, right? What's been the response since your launch? How, how big a, a pipeline of well, patients? Well, it's been there? extraordinary. I told you. Uh, I expected four. We got, we're, we're now up above 60. And it's growing. And I, I hope it grows less than logarithmically, but I'm quite confident it's going to grow more than arithmetically. Oh. Um, why, why should it be? Why should it be so so rapid? There are a lot of these patients. What's the the biggest challenge you've encountered so far, and what limits are you facing, if any, in terms of scaling this to treat more patients? Getting the word out. Uh, uh, um, I mean, because it's just me, basically. So I've talked to the the geneticists, have talked to the genetic society, have to talk to the hepatologists, have talked to the hepatology society, pulmonologists, nephrologists, you know, all these are separate enclaves. And so made great progress in neuro and kidney, less progress so far in lung and, and um, eye, and some progress in the liver. So one goal this year is to increase the number of applications that are lung, kidney, I mean, lung, kidney, liver, and eye by at least, uh, so that they account for at least 15, 20% of the cases. That's a big deal. There are tremendous numbers of these patients. Uh, I mean, everybody knows cystic fibrosis, but cystic fibrosis is made up of many different genetic causes. And then there are all kinds of other lung diseases. And everybody knows inborn errors of metabolism like, uh, um, uh, you know, lipid disorders and lipid dystrophies and so on. But there are lots of them in the liver. And amyloidosis in the liver. We're about to treat a patient with an amyloidosis that causes a kidney disease, but the protein's made in the liver. Similarly, in the eye, most people know about retinitis pigmentosa, but what about the rest of these very rare heart eye diseases? So we've got to get the word out to the practitioners and the patients. That's a key goal. The second goal now is to raise money. And you know we're putting the materials together and we'll start getting to the various organizations. We make good progress. Uh, you know, this year without any effort at all, we added... Uh, more than $4 million. And our, our founding donors, Ionis has contributed 2.8 million. Uh, Biogen, our partner in the neurosciences has contributed a similar amount. They don't like to um, give the exact amount. And then my wife and I have contributed 3.2 million. Uh, and, and so, you know, we have the money we need to meet the needs that we have right now but I'm, I'm building a war chest so that we can treat, you know, 200 or 300 or 1,000 patients a year one of these days. So we've got to raise money. 
we have we've had great coverage in the trade and scientific press. Uh, no coverage in the lay press. And you know, I lay that off on on COVID. But in 2021, we must get to the lay press. We must we must take advantage of these channels that are available to us to to help people know that there is there are people trying to help uh, without a promise that we're going to be the one but at least there's somebody who's trying i'll tell you something <clears throat> hope matters as a physician i learned that many decades ago that that when somebody loses hope they lose their life when you can give them hope they have a chance. So they, people need to know there's hope. And uh, I'm probably missing some things and Tracy or Kim can fill in the blanks, but those are the ones that come to mind right now. There have been a, a number of questions about how regulators would approach these therapies. You spoke about the FDA moving with speed. Uh, where do you think we are in terms of having clarity about those questions for an organization? The FDA, the FDA uh, released a preliminary guidance in January of this year. And we were very pleased about it because it focused on ASOs, which is where it ought to focus. And it said that, that you know, basically the, the, all the participants must cooperate and work together. And they agreed with early interactions and so on. Uh, that was quite surprising to me. Um, what we're doing raises policy issues that the laws weren't created to, to deal with. So I thought it might be years. Uh, and the FDA has announced that they hope to have more definitive guidance by the end of the year. We've made a number of uh, inputs um, prior to them actually starting to put guidance together and after, and we'll continue to make input. We, I think, are the only organization with any experience, um, real experience. We have others, we have individual physicians who've uh, done, done some ASOs, but we're the only organization that has systematically attacked this problem that I'm aware of. One of the first test cases of this type of approach came from the work of Boston Children's Hospital researcher Timothy Yu, who developed an ASO treatment for Mila Mekovic, a young child with an ultra rare and deadly form of the neurodegenerative disease, Batten disease. Mila died in February. Uh, this wasn't a project of MLARM, but I'm wondering how you viewed that and what effect her death has had on the community of researchers and patients with whom you work. Well, I know Tim well, and he's a very capable person, a wonderful pediatrician, uh, and my heart goes out to Mila and her family, of course, and I was very pleased that Tim was with them at the funeral, um, and Tim did work with Ionis. Uh, he's, he, he was one of the few actually worked with Ionis. Uh, of course, I know nothing about Mila per se, but what um, Tim's article in New England Journal, what he said to me on quite a number of occasions was that he felt Mila was, was benefited. The, the problem was that I, I don't know that he predefined 
how he would measure benefit and, and that sort of thing. So these patients uh, are desperately ill. Many of them will die. Um, we've helped investigator an investigator treat um, a number of patients with fuss, this we being Ionis and Enlorm, while we were setting up Enlorm, a number of patients with uh, a fuss mutation ALS. Fuss mutation ALS is a tremendously aggressive form of ALS. From symptom onset to death is typically less than six months. Uh, and the first patient that uh, this investigator treated um, lived uh, more than a year. Well, she was already, we didn't think we'd be able to get the ASO to her in time because uh, she was requiring respiratory th uh, care. I mean, she was on a respirator, uh, but she lived another year. So, uh, you know, physicians and scientists and people who develop medicine for a living understand people die. Uh, so, uh, it, Mila's death is just heartbreaking. But I do think she had, I think her parents had more time with her and more quality time with her because of what Tim did. And I believe that the ALS patients had more time and with their, with their family and had higher quality lives because of what was done. And so it encourages us. It just speaks to how desperate the need is. My goodness, why wouldn't it? What, what possible response could you expect from me other than I'm even more urgent to get this thing done? Stanley Crook, founder, CEO, and chairman of the Enlorm Foundation. Stan, thanks so much for your time today. All righty. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.